As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello there. How are you doing? Thank you for tuning in to the Zonal Marking podcast this week. Now, this episode originally came out on this feed back in March, but this week we're having a week off recording. We've got our heads buried in various books, websites, research tools. We are getting primed for the Euros, which we will be previewing in depth on the Zonal Marking podcast next week. And in the meantime, we thought that we'd give those of you who may have missed it the first time. The chance to listen again to our episode about England at the 2018 World Cup. That was a special episode looking back. Next week, of course, we will look forward at the Euros as a whole. We'll also be providing analysis throughout the tournament at every major juncture. We will be there. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed for all future episodes as soon as they are released and enjoy this special episode about England at the 2018 World Cup. Welcome, thank you for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking podcast, which is a podcast brought to you by The Athletic, and it features this week myself, Ali Maxwell, Michael Cox, tactics writer for The Athletic, and the returning Tom Warville as well, analytics guru, and Michael, it's international break. We want to take a deep breath and take a pause from club football. I think everyone is in agreement of that. And when thinking of an international-themed topic for this week, it's England-related, but we think not just your standard England questions, looking back in order to look forward. Yeah, we're going to chat a little bit about the last World Cup when England got to the semi-finals and essentially discuss how good England were at that tournament because uh, there is a bit of a debate about that, isn't there? Well, it was a magnificent semi-final that they reached and we're going to just scratch beneath that surface level line uh, and take a look at uh, things we might have missed in the summary haze of, of 2018 because it's relevant of course heading into Euro 2020 as it's called being played in the summer of 2021 before we look back to World Cup 2018 Michael you have just written about the big one of the big debates uh, around the recent squad announcement and that's the exclusion of Trent Alexander-Arnold. What was your stance in this piece? Well, it's just looking back really at his England performances and the England performances of uh, the other right-backs. And I think you come to a conclusion that you can see where, you know, see why Southgate has made his decision. Personally, I would have had him in the squad. I just think he's the kind of player you want to have around. And there's every chance that he will, in the future, be very good for England. But Southgate, like a lot of international managers, remembers those past performances. And I think... Fans tend to forget them, which is understandable this season because there's been so much football <laughs> since. But um, yeah, last international break, Alexander-Arnold was not very good and Rhys James was very good. And I think that's the main reason. No doubt that'll be a lively comment section, which I know will please <laughs> please your bosses, if not yourself, maybe. Tom, we're going to look back at World Cup 2018 and I'm interested to know from a data perspective... I mean, how much data and available data is there for major tournaments? I think we're all used to the stuff that you have at your fingertips for club football, top five European leagues, uh, European tournaments such as the Champions League and the Europa League. Uh, what about for major tournaments? 
Does it exist? How far does it go back? Yeah, so, um, I mean, Opta have gone back and analysed every single World Cup game back to 1966. And we did some stuff when I was there looking at the trends of, of, of games in those different tournaments and how the game kind of changed across the years. And I think there was some a great stat where I think that in the World Cup final between England and, and Germany in 66, I think combined there was something like 54 shots in the game and we were looking at like the xg of, of those chances and i think in total it was like two for the game just showing how mental football was back then but in terms of publicly available data there's some stuff for world cup 2018 on fb ref which is a site which we reference quite a bit on this podcast um and yeah we've we've used that uh, a bit for this to look at different um players and and teams and also england's um, performances at uh, or in russia yeah i did ask you before we dive into the england specific stuff if there were any interesting nuggets that you can either remember or that you've got from FB Ref, Michael, at World Cup 2018, anything interesting from that? Yeah, I mean, tactically it was quite an interesting tournament, maybe not in the kind of usual formations and system sense, but 43% of goals came from set pieces, which is the highest figure since Opta started collecting data about the World Cup, which, as Tom mentions, is 1966 when World Cup football truly began I think we can all agree that seemed to be heavily linked to VAR the lack of defenders shirt pulling and blocking off and that kind of thing we haven't seen that so much in domestic football with VAR it must be said uh, in terms of a massive rise of set pieces but what we have seen is a, a real record high number of penalties particularly this season in the Premier League and that was something uh, that was evident at the last World Cup as well it was Again, the, the the record for the highest number of penalties that we've seen in any tournament. I think there were, uh, it was at least one in the final, wasn't there? Yeah, there was one in the final, Manzukic handball. So yeah, it was it was really about set pieces, whether you consider penalties a, a set piece or not. But, you know, there weren't that many goals from open play and uh, maybe that's a, a trend we will see continuing. Cagey games, Tom, to put a positive spin on it, sometimes means late drama. Yeah, there was more uh, game-winning goals in, in 20, 2018 uh, after the 90th minute um, compared to other World Cups. I think there were nine in 2018 and I think four in 2014. So there's a, a big jump there. And yeah, I'm not sure that's something that is quite carried over to domestic leagues and, and was just a, a function of the tournament and maybe just the, the way it was really. But um, that was definitely uh, one that meant you, you probably should always keep watching uh, until the end because it's never quite over until the, the fat lady sings, as the <laughs> saying goes. And Luka Modric won the Golden Ball Player of the Tournament. But in data terms, there was someone that really stood out to you looking back at this. Yeah, looking at the the data on FB Ref, I saw that Neymar had um, a combined expected goals and expected assists value of, of 7.2. So overall, he should have combined to, to score or assist seven goals. And he only got four in total. Um, and that, for a player in a single tournament, is, is absolutely huge. And, I mean, he created more or had more shot creating actions which is the the previous or the um, previous before action before a shot is created so it takes into account things like winning penalties or if you have a shot which then creates another shot you'll get rewarded for that so Neymar was just um he had all of Brazil's attack running through him really and uh be quite an interesting player or, or a few games to go back and watch and just see why why that was he's always been quite a high usage high workload player but um that was that was his role really on steroids at the, mm. at the World Cup. Maybe a reminder to those who judge individual players on how many international tournaments they've won that, you know, you can still be about as good as a player can possibly be and, and maybe still be let down by your team as a whole. Um, Coxie, let's let's just remember England's run to the semi-finals. As soon as I think back to this, I hear Atomic Kittens hole again uh the southgate remix i think of him in his waistcoat which sold out at marks and spencer but what was southgate's general tactical approach for england uh, and talk me through the, the starting 11 as was because it's actually changed quite a lot in the last three years yeah i guess the interesting thing was they were one of the only three sides at the tournament to use a the back three, Atomic Kitten, there was three of them as well. I'm not sure where there was any link. But uh, yeah, the, the others were Belgium and, and Costa Rica. Obviously, Belgium England played twice. Costa Rica had a lot of success with the back three in, in 2014 and, and stuck with it, albeit with a different manager. I mean, it's interesting. Carl Walker, John Stones, Harry Maguire was the three back then. I don't think at any stage really over the last three years, we would have said that was England's first choice defensive line in part because England have played with a, a back four and now it's back to that 
back three, possibly, in terms of Walker's back in the squad, John Stones is back in the squad. And now he's probably fairly confident that would be England's trio for the first game this summer. So that's that's interesting. The wing-backs, I mean, that was Trippier and Young. And that was a bit of a surprise um, to a lot of people going into the tournament. I think if he, if you'd asked every England fan to pick their wing-backs, they, put a, uh, they would have picked Carl Walker, not as a centre-back, but as a wing-back. And Danny Rose on the other flank, who obviously was naturally left-footed. I think that Southgate really wanted to get set-piece ability into the side. Because you look at the other players in the squad, there weren't. I don't think there was any other set piece takers. Maybe Jordan Henderson. I don't think of him taking that many for Liverpool these days. So that worked very well, particularly Trippier's free kicks. I think. Uh, sorry, his corners and his free kick in the semi final was very useful. Jordan Henderson was in front of the defence. I think he did okay. He probably wasn't as good a player then as he is now after the success he's had with Liverpool. The alternative was Eric Dyer, who I think it must be said was, was quite poor when he came on, particularly that game against Colombia. And further forward, we had Jesse Lingard and Deli Alley as free eights, to use the Kevin De Bruyne expression. Lingard, I think, had a very good tournament. He was always breaking in behind. Probably should have scored more goals than he eventually did. I think he only got one, but he had a, a lot of chances, particularly against uh, Panama. And uh, and in the opening game against uh, Tunisia as well. And then up front, you had Kane and Sterling, who basically played as a front two. Kane was the primary strike, if you like, but was always coming deep towards play. Sterling started a little bit deeper, but was always going in behind. Actually offered a great goal threat, despite not finding the target um, at that tournament. So I think it worked really well. It was very cohesive. It was an unusual system. I think it took teams a little bit of a... A little bit of time to suss out quite how England were playing. And yeah, it was something different. So I think in, in general, I would give Southgate credit for the way that he devised a, a first-choice system. I think the question was about how well England uh, were flexible and how much they changed away from that when at times they needed to. Mm. You mentioned Lingard there. It's kind of a funny one, isn't it? He, he did have the most non-penalty shots for England in the tournament with 16. Uh, has barely been involved since then, but has just been called up again for, for these World Cup qualifiers. So full circle there for, for Lingard. And in terms of the group stage results, beating Tunisia, beating Panama, losing to Belgium, on the face of it, that's pretty standard fare uh, in terms of results. Do you think England were playing well in the group stages? Because I don't think people were necessarily getting excited at this stage. Yeah, it's so hard to judge, isn't it? I mean, Tunisia and Panama, they're just so different from the sides you have to beat to win the tournament, aren't they? Um, but I think England did a very good job. I mean, Tunisia, that was 2-1 with, with one of the uh, last-minute goals, I think, that Tom uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, through Harry Kane but England really I mean they were much the better side should have won that much more comfortably Panama absolutely thrashed them obviously they were I think probably the weakest side of that World Cup I guess when you look at the tournament overall I think you have to say that England basically beat the sides you'd expect them to beat they lost to Belgium twice uh, and at the end of 90 minutes they drew with Colombia and with Croatia so it was pretty much as you'd expect wasn't it throughout the tournament but overall I think you have to give them credit for getting through to the semi-finals, we have seen over the years many shocks of the World Cup when you know big sides go out to, to sides you wouldn't expect. So we shouldn't take for granted the fact that they got out of the group stage easily. Tom, one of the themes of the group stage was England's ability to score goals, create chances from set-piece situations. The flip side of that being they didn't do a ton outside of that. Certainly just looking at the goals, I mean, both goals against Tunisia were Kane goals following corner situations. Even against Panama, you're looking at two set-piece goals, two penalties, Lingard's strike from range and another long-range strike which freakishly deflected off Kane's heel and went in and, of course, drew a blank against Belgium. So looking back into the numbers, did England create much from open play outside of that Panama game? Yeah, that, that Panama game is a great place to start because I think England only had nine shots in total and scored six of them, uh, obviously including the, the penalties. And overall, their XG for that game was 2.7 to show that they were they were finishing on a hot, bit of a hot streak. But it, I think our relationship... I'm, I'm on a tangent slightly, but I think it's important. I think our relationship with with stats during an international tournament changes slightly because that you can't really regress to a mean. There's not enough runway for teams to play enough fixtures for the the numbers to kind of fall in line um, with uh, with with performances. So I think you will see games like that. Um, but, but in terms of the creation of chances, I mean, I looked at the um, the kind of shot breakdowns for each game on FB Ref, um, and I made a, a nice tally chart in my notebook of the ones which came from set play originally and those that came from open play and we see that England's England had 43 shots from open play I, I looked at all the games apart from 
the third place playoff just because that felt like a bit of a a throwaway come the end of the tournament and 34 from set plays um, and in total that means that there was a, a 56-44% split between open play and set play which when you compare to the Premier League this season the highest share of chances from set plays that we have is Southampton with just 25% so that's a huge jump really and shows how much England really focused on uh, on set pieces and actually what we did see in terms of the goals scored does match up with with the statistics kind of the uh, what, what you see happen on the pitch there's no kind of anything hidden in the numbers that was actually how they were they were playing really um, but to answer the question kind of not not really there were nine shots from open play it's Colombia after extra time which I think is the the joint most alongside nine in the Sweden game um, but England very much were were geared towards making the most from those set piece opportunities and we saw a couple of really nice work goals which um, if you forgive the cliche were, were straight off the training ground but I think those are the things that in a World Cup you you know who you're going to face you know the opponents you can do a lot of homework in how they defend from these situations and you can try and game them and, and find slight edges and I think England did that really really well in Russia. The opponents is an important point here, isn't it, Michael? Because actually, in losing to Belgium, England finished second in the group, which ultimately gave them a route in the knockouts of Colombia, Sweden, Croatia, and then France, as it would have been had they won the semi-final. Whereas Belgium, the group winners, had to play Japan, followed by Brazil, and then France in their semi-final. So, you know, was this luck or was this masterstroke? Uh, I think it was a masterstroke. I think Southgate was very happy to lose that game. I think this was the point where Southgate Mania was at its peak. <laughs> and I think he played this situation beautifully in the press conferences, just towed the line perfectly. And I mean, if if he if you want to look as if you're trying to win a game, but actually you don't want to score, what do you do? You bring on Danny Welbeck. <laughs> I thought he he did, he did it brilliantly. I've never I don't think I've ever heard you praise a manager for essentially PR. But there's a first time for everything and and, and it's fair. Well, I mean it's 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 PR related to strategy though, isn't it? So so I, I can I feel uh, able to comment on it. I mean, some people gave it. I hope Tom will agree with me here, but some people were giving it the oh, you've got to win the game and just you know you have to beat the best if you want to win the tournament. But you obviously go for the easier yeah, half of the draw, don't you? I mean, a- England England's England's failing was not getting that route. I mean, England's failing was that they failed to put away a I think a really average Croatia side. Really, I mean, I know they got to the final, but they got to that semi-final on the back of two penalty shootout wins. I mean, England will never, ever have a better path to the final than that. Um, just a shame they couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I don't know who really is going to sit on the end of that, other end of that argument and say, you know, oh, I'd, I'd rather win a World Cup by beating tougher opponents. It, it doesn't make any, st- any sense. And, and given a tournament where there's so few games and luck plays such a huge part, you want the easiest routes possible, really. And yeah, I, I agree with, with Coxie. It definitely was a, a bit of a masterstroke, the um, the nine changes against Belgium versus the, the lineup against Tun- Tunisia. Having said that, they still had to beat Colombia and Sweden. Uh, this was the first week of July, Coxie. As you say, this truly was the the peak. I think for for all of us who follow England, how much of England's win against Colombia, one all after extra time, victory on penalties, which felt very significant, uh, and how much was their two 0 win against Sweden, England performing well and winning comfortably, and how much was are we getting a little carried away because we haven't won a penalty shootout in a major tournament for a while? Yeah, it was a funny one. I mean, I think England should have beaten Colombia in normal time, really. I, I thought Colombia played a really strange approach. I mean, they just were so intent on physicality and winding up England and getting into running battles. And I just thought, you're actually a good side. I know they didn't have James Rodriguez and maybe that's why they, they felt they had to play a little bit differently. But I thought it was very strange. I think England, by and large, rose above that uh, and were the better team. Um, the thing that troubled me was was when Colombia switched formation. They switched to three five two. England didn't have any response to that, and that's really when Colombia rallied and got back in the game. And then it was an extra time when when Peckerman went to a four four two. So he almost reverted to what he'd started with to a certain extent because he started with the diamond. And then Colombia went flat again. So it was just it felt like Colombia's system changes were really what altered the game rather than any, anything England did. Sweden, I thought, was quite simple. I mean, they're a very narrow side, a very compact side. England had lots of space down the flanks. And I think they, by and large, 
use that pretty well. I think, uh, again, with all due respect to Swedish football, I think if you encounter Sweden in the quarterfinals, and that's probably been your arguably your toughest opponent so far, you've done very well to get a, a good path to that point. And yeah, England were pretty comfortable in that game. Uh, and England may not have created and scored a ton from open play, Tom, but on the other end of the pitch, defensively, pretty solid, pretty impressive, even in the knockout stages. Yeah, I mean, even in 120 minutes against Colombia, I think they only conceded 0.5 xG, which is pretty good. But then you look at the way that Colombia set up and they had a, a midfield kind of trio of Jefferson Lerma, Wilma Barrios and Carlos Sanchez, which doesn't really scream creativity or, or progression or anything to do with attacking intent. So, um, yeah, I think they did well in that game. And then against Sweden, um, I think they created the same quality of chances, about 0.7 xG each. Uh, and there was one clear example I can remember in my mind of, I think it's Ola Toivonen, um, had a decent chance in the box, saved by Pickford, and then there was a great kind of secondary block to the follow-up by Jordan Henderson, and that was um, that's proper, you know, pints in the air defending um, at that moment in time. So, yeah, I thought that maybe not super exciting going forwards, but very resolute at the back. And I have to admit, I've pretty much blanked out or blacked out the semi-final game in terms of a, 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 you know, in terms of any sort of footballing breakdown. So it's good that we've got Michael on hand here. What was your breakdown, your analysis of that game against Croatia? England going ahead early through a Trippier free kick and Croatia clawing their way back into the game and winning it in extra time. What was England's performance like? I think for the first hour, pretty good. I mean, there's, there's two things you probably will remember about the performance, Ali. The first is a Trippier goal, as you mentioned. And the second is when Kane didn't square to Sterling and shot for goal himself. The interesting thing is that both those goals came, or both those incidents, I should say, came from a very similar attack, which was Lingard and Ali directly combining between the lines in a way that I think was would only happen because of the way England played with that midfield in the 2-3-8. So they combined between the lines to win the free kick, which Trippio scored, and then they combined between the lines to knock it through to Kane when he shot, maybe he should have passed, whatever. But that showed the strength of the system. I think after an hour, maybe after half time, it showed the weakness of the system. Obviously, if you play 3 5 2, there's a lot of space for the opposition fullbacks to attack into, especially when that side is dominating possession, which obviously they did with Modric and Rakitic. England were forced into back five. England's wing backs didn't have the, the confidence or the time to come up and close down Croatia's wing backs. And this is again where I think Southgate fell down. He didn't react within the game. And I don't think England needed to really change system. I think all they needed to do was to see that Visayko, the, the right back, was the man who was, well, he was the biggest threat in the game before, which was, I think, against Russia. I just felt England needed to put Sterling on him or put Sterling towards that flank and then he could attack him behind. But England stayed for the whole game with two men up front. It was Rashford who came on for, for Sterling at one point. And I thought that was a massive failing. I don't think England needed to be balanced on both flanks. I don't think they needed someone on the other side because Croatia had Strinic there who couldn't really run and couldn't really cross. So it wasn't much of a threat. But Vesalico was always the danger. And eventually he crossed for the Perisic goal. And I don't really understand how England's coaching staff, not just Southgate with the coaches as well, could have been seeing that unfolding and not think to make, a, I think, a really simple tactical change. And I think it's things like that Thinking on your feet midway through games, I think that's where England were let down, really. Like I say, I think the starting system worked really well throughout that tournament. But a couple of times against Colombia and against uh, Croatia, the opposition changed, England didn't change, and they were on the back foot. And I think that nearly cost England in the second round. I think it did cost them in the semi-final. The second half against Croatia, uh, specifically after conceding um, Perisic's goal, was was interesting for England. I think definitely lines up with what Coxie's saying in terms of not adjusting tactically and then kind of being quite defensive and essentially struggling to bring anything going forwards. I think England had three shots from the 68th to the 90th minute and just two in added time, and both of those were kind of from the same situation. I think there was a Harry Maguire effort followed by a dire one shortly after. And in that the same time Croatia were just hammering England had thirteen shots in, in that time. So the definitely that the momentum had shifted and it's something that you could easily see both watching or even just looking at the number of shots that, that something had changed and um yeah it's, that's the that's really where you want to manage to be to making that change and try and impact the game and, and stop the flow of it. And um I do wonder why why Southgate hasn't made that change? Is he just kind of thinking that this is just a 
part of the game and it will, it will pass and it will change and it, the natural flow of the game will go back to how it was or was it just you know failing to think or, or or act those are the things that in a league game you get more of a sample and more of an understanding of if things change how a manager reacts whereas at the international level you I guess it's, it is a lot tougher because what was if he made a change Croatia moved back and then he didn't react again or, or something like that it's a very a lot of strategy involved and you have to be a good strategist and I guess in that situation Southgate wasn't I guess the hope is that Southgate would have taken a lot from that experience of course his first major tournament as as England manager heading into the Euros this summer I, I mean Michael off the back of that there was a lot of pride at having reached a semi-final what do you think were the the key questions overall that I suppose we would now project forwards to see if they've been answered at all over the last three years heading into this summer's tournament yeah, I mean, I'd say tactical flexibility. I think that was the main issue, really. And, and Southgate has spoken this week about the need to be flexible. Hopefully that will change if, if England encounter a similar situation uh, this summer. I guess the other thing is is creativity from open play. You know, there was a dependence on set pieces. I'd say that Lingard and Ali were more off-the-ball runners, I think, than, than real on-the-ball players. You know, like I say, they did combine well between the lines against Croatia, but I don't think any of them... Are, were wonderfully gifted playmakers. I think they were good at arriving in the right place at the right time, which worked for England's system. But yeah, maybe there's a need to create chances from a wider variety of situations. I think the other thing which we we saw from that game was that Henderson, Trippier and Walker were top for England in terms of progressive passes, which are those that move the ball forward 10 metres or more, um, further forward than the ball has been in the previous six passes or so. And I think that that is interesting because it shows a kind of right-sided dominance um, for England and where they look to progress the ball forwards. And in recent fixtures, I think definitely the the game against Denmark comes to mind where England had the same issues getting the ball out of the back and were struggling to progress it um, down the left. And it comes back to this whole thing of having kind of naturally left-footed players on the left that can more easily move the ball and work the ball upfield. Um, and I just wonder whether now we're a bit more flexible and a bit more able to build either side if we have you know a left-footed wing back and like young in the mold of, of Bukayo Saka who is more comfortable receiving and playing on his left or even I know Tyra Mings in certain situations who is obviously naturally left-footed and plays those sorts of passes for his club so that one for me is is interesting in terms of balance um, that we're not favoring one side more than the other we can actually get out on both sides. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. What is the story tactically, Michael, of the over the last two and a half years since that point? I was under the impression, and I must admit I don't know exactly where I got this from, that Southgate was eager to move away from the three at the back system post-World Cup. And I suppose if you look at the 2019 matches, that did happen, but more recently seems to have moved back. What's that all about? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. You're right. I mean, I was I was quite positive at the move away from the back three because of what I said happened against Croatia. And uh, there was one of the Nation League, uh, Nations League games... Maybe it was one against Spain uh, shortly afterwards, not the one we won, obviously, uh, where a kind of similar thing happened. So I, I thought it was probably the right time to, to move away from that. Maybe the interesting thing now is we've gone back to a back three, but it's more of a 3-4-3 three, three than a 3-5-2. I think that's probably dependent on the players at his disposal and the players in form 
Um, Ali and Lingard have not been a part of the squad uh, for the last couple of years. Obviously, Lingard is back. And the players who have come to the fore have been Jane Sancho now. I mean, was not a factor in 2018. Um, and I think now has, has been absolutely sensational for Dortmund over the past couple of years. Marcus Rashford is more established than he's been. Raheem Sterling... Uh, probably at the same level. So I think there's a change of style in the way England are playing going forward and, and probably do have more players comfortable as a as a wide forward. Mm. So um, I understand why that change has, has been made. Well, it's very noticeable watching back the video that the England YouTube channel has put up of all 37 goals that England scored in their Euro qualifiers. That's 37 goals that they scored in, in just eight games, uh, a, a total goal difference of plus 31 in those games. It is very noticeable tactically that a, a, a very, very uh, effective way of England scoring goals was Harry Kane dropping in and runners from wide, mostly Sancho and Sterling, receiving really good through balls from Kane that go between the, the centre-back and the full-back. And maybe that's a... Uh, you know, a really positive change to the system change. I note that, you know, I was I was ready for people to laugh and say, well, you know, England always qualify comfortably and score lots of goals. But actually in qualification for the 2018 World Cup, they only scored 18 in 10 games, this time around 37 in eight games. So going forward, Michael, can we say that, yes, the question of England being able to create more chances in open play has been addressed to a certain extent? Yeah, to a certain extent. I think, I suppose it's changed slightly because there's, there's the Nations League and, and England have played against better sides. But I just, I think there's such a difference between the, the quality of opposition you encounter at various stages in international football. And that's why sometimes with all the stats from, from the previous couple of years, I'm slightly reluctant to read too much into them. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that is a, a reason to be positive. And also the fact that there's a couple of players who have emerged, well, probably three players who have emerged since the last World Cup, who offer creativity that, I don't think England had, and that being Grealish, Mount and Foden, who all, in various ways, I think quite un-English players. And another factor in that is one of the best assisters. I'm not sure if Tom has the stats off the top of his head. Probably not. Sorry, always put him on the spot. But, I mean, Kane's right up there in terms of assists this season. We've spent the, you know, the last, uh, sorry, the first couple of months of the campaign talking about how he was creating more than he was scoring. So, yeah, there are various reasons to think England might have more sources of creativity than they did Three years ago. Squad does look actually quite different, doesn't it? I know that there are probably injuries to, to upwards of five players who you'd expect to be right in the mix for the squad this summer. But if you take the squad that Southgate's announced for these World Cup qualifiers that we'll see in the next few weeks, there are only 10 members of the 2018 World Cup squad of, of 23. So let's just talk through some of the changes in, in personnel, Michael. I, I mean... First and foremost, a lot of those players who were in vogue in 2018 have really kind of fallen off quite significantly. Not all of them due to natural age uh, issues. Yeah, you're right. It's, I mean, it's, it's funny to look back and think Ashley Young was playing left wing back for England uh, at that stage. Yeah, I mean, a few have, have dropped out. Deli Ali, for example, is nowhere near the squad. But as we said, for me, it's been more interesting that some have completely come back into the reckoning. Uh, almost old favourites, John Stone's. Jesse Lingard, Carl Walker was left out of the England squad for a while. And with, with so many right backs around, you know, especially when England were playing a back four, people thought maybe that was the end of his international career. He's come back as well. So, yeah, it's it's a really exciting generation of talent England have got. I think there was, you know, we talk a lot about the golden generation of what, between 2000, 2006, I guess, was, was maybe their collective peak. But maybe we didn't talk about enough about the fact that after that, there was a real lost generation almost. If you look in the mid-80s in terms of when they were born, it was only really Joe Hart and, and Wayne Rooney who were at any point real top-class players um, and they maybe didn't have the longevity that you would expect into their 30s. So, yeah, England, England, I think, actually moved on quite quickly to to get the squad they ended up with for 2018 and then moved on quite quickly from them to get the new squad. But, yeah, I think there's a lot of positivity about this generation and, and even the generation coming through in the under-21s. So um, I think Southgate's been right to uh, bring in some new faces whenever he has been able to. Bukayo Saka's inclusion for me is always a, an interesting one just because, I mean, on the FA website, they put him down in the attackers group, which feels that you could put him in, in either defence, midfield or attack at this point. But he's someone who, I mean, on the left, 
Ashley Young's no longer there. Ashley Young was was predominantly a right-footed or is a predominantly a right-footed player. And so it's it's interesting that we're going to have either him, Luke Shaw or Ben Chilwell down the left and someone who naturally is is left-footed. But I'm intrigued about how we've moved, we've recently moved from this 3-5-2, which if you think of Kane and Son and the potency of that partnership this season, that's the best system arguably to get the most out of of Kane of, in light of recent evidence to a 3-4-3 which there's obviously a man lighter in midfield a man further up, uh, upfield and maybe gives you more impact and, and threat from the wings but also maybe fits fits how Saka if he is the chosen player on, on that left wing back position will play um, he feels less of a definitely less of a crosser and someone who likes to cut inside not someone who really sticks to the wings as much and like you know roams into that that kind of left channel uh, more often than not so um, I'm intrigued to see like why the reason for that change to the the three um, three four three is because I do think you lose out you obviously lose out one of those three eight positions and I think that your sitting midfield two which I think most recently was um, Rice and Mount you need one of them to be definitely a lot more disciplined in their positioning and Rice is obviously someone who's always going to hold and not really going to roam too much but there's you're restricting the freedom you would have had in the likes of, of Lingard and, and Deli Alley. So I'm intrigued to see in these upcoming upcoming qualifiers kind of what the balance is there and uh, and whether we, we settle on one of those systems. Well, I, I guess the argument might be kind of what I touched on, that Kane dropping into those spaces that might otherwise have been a bit clogged up by two free eights has actually unlocked an extra dimension to England's play given the strength of Sterling at being a pure goal-scoring wide forward uh, and Sancho's uh, sort of um, explosion as well over the last few years. I mean, M- Michael, we've spoken so much about Southgate going back to a three-at-the-back system. Do you think there's any chance that he might scrap that or try something new maybe in, in the upcoming qualifiers? Because you, you mentioned significant development of Jack Grealish, of Mason Mount and of Phil Foden. And it strikes me that a 4-2-3-1, for example, or a 4-3-3 with real, you know, two really attack-minded eights in that mould might make more sense for the talent of the group, whether that's the right thing or not, than the 3-4-3 system, you know, uh, one less defensive player, one more attacking player, ultimately. Yeah, um, I, I think you could be right. I think he, he hinted at tactical flexibility in his press conference a couple of times. I'd be surprised if... That just meant the difference between three four three and three five two. So yeah, a back four could well be on the cards. I think, like you say, England have got the players who are comfortable playing there. We have a couple of players, Chilwell and uh, Shaw, who are comfortable playing left back. Maybe we didn't have that so much three years ago. And yeah, with the attacking players, with those creative players I mentioned earlier, I think there is more of a case for that. And there's three games in this international break against San Marino. Uh, Albania and Poland and I think there will be room for experimentation there I think especially because Southgate will almost be forced to chop and change because he won't want to be knackering players by playing them three lots of 90 minutes so I think the personnel is going to change and I think perhaps the shape might change whether you can learn much from a game against San Marino is uh, yeah that's another question but I think you're right Ali I think there's a good uh, there's a very good chance England will play a back three and a back four at some point in this international break. And where do you think England are at in terms of a midfield combination? And I really mean the, the base of midfield, whether we're talking three at the back or a four-two-three-one. You know, ultimately, there's going to be two holding midfielders is probably the wrong word, but but a, a double pivot of some format. Uh, where do you think we're at with that? Because Henderson played in front of the back five or back three at World Cup 2018. He's currently injured. Declan Rice has emerged. I don't think we've really mentioned him yet on the pod. Uh, how do you think he'll approach that? Because I've got some bad memories of recent England games with a back five and with two defensive midfield players and you know, really struggling with ball progression, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I think it's got to vary based upon the opponent, hasn't it? I mean, you can't play... I don't think you can play Henderson and Rice against you know one of the sides we're going to face in the group stage with all due respect maybe Croatia but yeah you're going to need someone like Mount in there I think to uh, even if that's a lot deeper than he plays for Chelsea to to provide more quality on the ball but I think England will have to change completely if they play against the Spain or France or someone in the in the knockout stages at that point I can see the value of Henderson and Rice together which people might think is very defensive but I think against the quality of those teams maybe it'll be necessary and I think actually Henderson and Rice 
both do have quality on the ball. We've seen uh, Henderson's passing, I think, has improved massively over the last couple of years. Rice, I think me and Tom have both uh, done articles on him over the last few months and his ability particularly to take the ball forward. I don't know if you saw towards the end of the game against Arsenal, he <laughs> yeah. went on a mad 60-yard dribble, which he did earlier in the season, I think away against Leicester um, when he hit the bar. So he has got that ability to carry the ball. So I don't think Henderson and Rice would be a completely, madly defensive double pivot. Um, I think England briefly used Dyer and Henderson in the last World Cup and that was that was a little bit too negative, I think. But yeah, Rice brings a little bit more. You know what, Tom's already told us in a previous podcast about all the qualities that Declan Rice has that, that maybe are outside of, of how people had pigeonholed him previously. Just to, to put you on the spot, I mean, I know that on the site last week when the squad was announced, uh, a lot of the writers were picking their uh, 30-man squads, their ideal 30-man squads. You were conspicuous by your absence, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot and ask you what you think England's current likely 11 is were the Euros to start tomorrow morning? Well, I think this is the more appropriate task. I mean, this is a, a slightly going off on a tangent, but I think we spend far too much time talking about who's going to be like the backup left back or the third choice goalkeeper and not about the actual 11. I think that's the issue for England at the moment because we chopped and changed so much with so many players that we don't really have that many familiar partnerships or, or combinations. But I think it's going to look something like the World Cup 11 from three years ago. I think Walker Stones and Maguire is in line to be the back three. I think Kieran Trippi is the favourite to start on the right flank because he's always done very well for England. I think on the left, that's obviously up for question because Young and, and Rose are, are, haven't been in the squad for a couple of years. I think Luke Shaw on current form is probably going to get the nod there. Henderson will start if he's fit. Then I think Mason Mount will play alongside him in, in the group games. And then up front, I think you're going to have Harry Kane with two of Sancho, Sterling and Rashford either side. And I'd almost say... I don't mind which two of them that is. I think that can be a little bit on form, on who's playing well in training, on who's combining well with Kane. I think they're broadly similar players with similar abilities. Sancho probably stays wider than the other two. Sterling is the one who is probably most comfortable playing either side. Rashford's the one who probably has to be on the left cutting inside. Although for Manchester United on occasion has done well crossing from the right. So yeah, I think it's going to be 3-4-3, three, three, those kind of players. And then I think probably uh, Grealish, and and Foden will be almost the joker in the pack who can come in and offer a little bit more connection between midfield and attack. Yeah, I think I'd largely agree um, with probably the back four. Definitely with Trippi on the right for his crossing ability and then one of, yeah, I think on uh, in terms of fitness, you're probably picking Rice over Henderson, but that one might be a more of a toss-up come, um, come the start of the tournament. But the biggest one for me is, I think, yes, Kane, yes, Sterling. But I just think Grealish is that that player who offers something slightly different to, to a Sancho and a Rashford. I think that he's arguably better at linking play than, than Rashford is. And Rashford still has that element to his game where he's a bit selfish at times and he does pick options which are... Um, perhaps the, the more difficult chances to score or um, not really used to playing in the side, perhaps at United, which are staging attacks, kind of building from, from the back and moving more upfield. And I just think Grealish is such a, a good magnet for opposition players to come and kind of dribble towards them and, and pull them out of position. And you can then use Kane's passing and Sterling's movement to really capitalise on those. So the biggest, I mean, the biggest debate around this tournament for England will probably be whether you sit on the uh, the side of the argument of Grealish should be starting versus Grealish as an impact sub from the bench. But um, for me, I think that we should should start him and maybe use Sancho as that um, that catalyst from the bench instead. I guess there is a sort of happy medium where Southgate goes for a real horses for courses approach, and you know, you're talking about the difference between Grealish and Rashford. There, it it could be as simple as if England are likely to come up against a team playing a very low block, if England are therefore likely to have 70% possession and 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 need to find ways to unlock a deep defence, then Grealish, that's what he does, right? But if the majority of England's attacks might be you know, a bit more in transition, maybe Kane dropping in and, and wide forwards galloping in behind, then the pace of Rashford um, could be quite key there. So, I mean, is that is it likely, Michael? You know, are there other international managers that you can think of that take a really, you know, tactically flex, flexible, even flexible in terms of personnel, horses for co courses approach to tournament football? Or do, 
do coaches tend to stick fairly rigidly to a system and a starting 11 or, or maybe a squad of 14, 15? Yeah, I think it varies massively. I think some some managers do like to chop and change. I can think, you know, of of recent World Cup winning squads. Italy 2006, Lippi changed almost every game. I think he had six different forwards, all of whom found the target. Um, at some point, he played all manner of systems. In recent years, it's tended to be a bit more stable with, with Spain in 2010, France in 2018. Germany in 2014, I think, is a funny one where they probably only found their best system midway through the tournament. And I think that probably happens more than we think, you know, that, that things click into place after the third or fourth game and suddenly you arrive with a system that maybe a manager didn't intend on playing a couple of months beforehand. So, yeah, it, it's funny international tournaments, isn't it? It's such a short period of time. It's really dependent on on a couple of matches, whether it's... Uh, you know, a great success or a great failure. And it might be that a couple of things click into place for England midway through the tournament in terms of personnel. You can go back to two, uh, 98, for example. Michael Owen only came in for, I think, the was a sub in the second game, started in the third game and was regarded as, I think, best young player in the world by the fourth game, wasn't he? So things can change so dramatically. But I mean, England, I think, have more options, both in terms of quality and in terms of tactical variety than they have going into a tournament probably that I've ever seen. I mean, the golden generation were, you know, some great players, but they never really fitted into one system. I don't think there was that much variety in terms of different tactical options. Whereas now we're talking about Foden and Grealish being completely different players from Sancho and Sterling and Rashford. And yeah, I mean, it's just quite exciting. And I think it's, um, there's almost an argument Southgate's got one or two too many options in the final third. Because um, in this international break, he'll be tempted to give as many of them as possible minutes. And I think really what England need to be doing is finding reliable partnerships and combinations. You've gone for the Michael Owen example there, but what about Jeff Hurst in 66? Didn't start any of the uh, group games for England. Only came in because Jimmy Greaves suffered a gash. So there you go. It's, It's all about adapting in tournament. Uh, also, Tom, I feel a bit bad for you because Michael was slightly disparaging about people who worry too much about third choice goalkeepers or backup left backs. You did write a whole article on the Bamford versus Watkins debate, which, if you frame it another way, is essentially who should be England's third striker in the tournament. But what were your main findings when looking at Bamford versus Watkins, Watkins ended up getting the call. Yeah, Ali, I thought that would be an article straight up your street because these are two players who've, I guess, graduated from the EFL Academy, both to the Premier League and then on the fringes of the England team. So uh, you can rest easy at night that one of them is in the squad. But um, <laughs> it always felt that the speculation would be one of uh, one of Bamford or Watkins, or, or at least Bamford is. This is the best shot of his career to date to get into the England setup. And um, yeah, I was I was intrigued to kind of dig in and understand how these players differ from the you know from the data perspective and, and what their strengths and weaknesses are. And it feels like they're quite similar players, but the the biggest difference is just Bamford barely is on the ball at all, and and a lot of the value he adds to Leeds is is his running, his harrying, and, and his closing down. Um, I mean, him and Watkins do put up similar numbers of of pressures and tackles and interceptions and, and doing the kind of defensive side of the game, but uh, and Bamford kind of more of Leeds' attack runs through him, and he's definitely the focal point of that. But Watkins is the better one-on-one dribbler. Um, he's more likely to, to carry it forwards and play on the counter with Villa. And if you think of it from Southgate's point of view, he's probably looking for players who've got a bit <clears throat> bit of experience where they're playing in a system which is slightly closer to England's than um, the, you know than the clubs want at the moment. And Leeds' style of man marking across the pitch and intense pressure perhaps isn't as similar to how England might look this summer. With with you know if they're looking to uh, sit deep and attack teams that will attack quickly or actually have a kind of pressing forward from the front. So I think that they're both very different options to. Calvert-Lewin and very different options to Kane and I think that they're too similar to each other to pick both I don't think you get any value of having both of them um, so in the end I think Watkins is the the younger slightly more I guess versatile player who can attack from wide um, and yeah that's the the reason that they've gone for it but I do feel a bit for Bamford that this felt like his window to get that one cap that he's so desires to have in his career and uh, you struggle to see now building up for the Euros and then the World Cup obviously next year um, where the opportunity is going to come from. I mean I understand why Southgate wants to have a look at them in case there's an injury and one of them's needed but 
I mean, neither of them will get in the squad, will they? That's how I've read the situation. Kane will be the first choice number nine. Calvert-Lewin will be the plan B. And Rashford, obviously, will, will start wide but can play up front if needed. So I tend to think both of them will miss out. But yeah, obviously makes sense to have a look at them. That's a day of your life you won't get back, Tom. Unlucky. I think you should probably be <laughs> probably be running all your article ideas by Michael in future. Um, the, uh, the policeman uh, of whether ideas are, are good ideas or not. No, look, um, it's... It was a good article. I can't <laughs> deny that. It was a good article. And I agree with I agree with the conclusion about Watkins. I mean, I think he will be a... He will be an England player, won't he? He'll probably be an England player this week, but yeah, there's a good chance he will be a a squad member at some point. I just think at the moment there's quite a good option. Yeah, definitely. And and you look forward, I mean, we've not really spoken about the age of this squad too much, but it's we have got such a young core and there's two international tournaments within 18 months of each other, which is, I think, the first time ever, perhaps. So, um, yeah, you're going to prioritise the youth most likely because these are the guys that, are, in Watkins' case, is probably going to get better in that time, whereas Bumford... Um, is you know he's not old he's probably in his peak years for a striker but i you know you can see his career is maybe more on the downward trajectory than than Watkins there is so much to chew on when it comes to the England national team at the moment and thank you guys for talking me through it all really because i came into this episode slightly worried that one of the greatest summers of my life was built on a bed of lies and a bed of set pieces um but it turns out there was a little more to England's um, run to the World Cup semi-final thank you for talking me through that but also I mean I as a fan have still plenty of of questions probably more questions than answers heading into this international break heading into the Euros um, but I think talking through it all with you guys has certainly cleared plenty of that up plenty for Gareth Southgate to think about um, and fingers crossed that he has uh, well that he will answer some of those questions about tactical flexibility from the last major tournament but let us know what you guys think listening to this episode what do you think about uh, the the three four three versus three five two versus four two three one, and we're always keen to hear from you either in the comments section on the Athletic site uh, or on Twitter. It's brilliant to get your suggestions for future topics as well. We're always on the lookout for interesting things to chat about on the Zonal Marking podcast. So thank you so much for all your contributions over the last month or so. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Just a reminder that if you'd like to read Tom's article on Bamford versus Watkins or Michael on Trent Alexander-Arnold, then you could be a subscriber of The Athletic for just £3.99 a month if you're not already. That's by heading to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking where you'll find an annual subscription where you'll pay just £3.99 for the first six months. So do sign up today. Make sure you're subscribed to this pod. Go back through the old back catalogue. We've done so many episodes over the last year, keeping you company and keeping each other company over the last year or so. Thanks for listening. We'll chat again next week.